Hello world, this is Better Tech, a podcast where we chat with some of the most successful leaders about the latest industry developments. So join us as we explore the world reliant on tech. So hi guys, welcome to another episode of Better Tech, where we invite people like uh, Chris that we have today. Uh, who are the industry leaders to make us know where the world is headed and, and make us help how to make sense of the things that are happening today in the world of AI and ML. So Chris, why, why don't you start by introducing yourself, your background, your organization, what are you trying to do? Right? Yeah, well, first, uh, thank you very much for having me. And one thing I do feel is important given the timing is just to mention how lucky the two of us are to be here in a space of relative comfort to be able to talk about work and technology when so many other people don't have that luxury right now and um, you know you know, don't have the same level of security. So I not only feel fortunate to be able to talk with you today about this, but I just feel fortunate in general. So uh, I feel like that goes, goes without saying and thank you so much for having me. So, um, my, my background is I studied uh, economics uh, in college. I, I focused mostly on macroeconomics. That's what I was drawn to in my studies. And afterwards, that led me to uh, a position in currency investments, you know, because, you know, it was a very natural transition. So I, I was really always fascinated with macroeconomic policy, also international policy. That's what my thesis was. It was about... Um, business cycles, uh, global business cycles. And so after um, one, one of the positions I had after college was in quantitative currency investments where we would you know, forecast fluctuations in currency uh, prices uh, and do a lot of modeling. And so that was really my introduction to programming, uh, statistical programming. In fact, I was using MATLAB at the time and a lot of operations, um, that's you know not too dissimilar from what like people would learn as they're doing ML. You know, I, I imagine the approach now is very different than it was then, but that that was my um, early introduction to the professional field. Uh, I did find that I wanted to create more. I was drawn to create more. I had an internship during college uh, at um, a startup in Chicago called NVP.com. It was interesting because some of the financial backers were pro athletes. Uh, I might not remember this exactly, but I believe it was like Michael Jordan and Wayne Gretzky. And the thing, you know, that was really fun. I was in the merchandising department. So we would, um, you know, put product lines up on the website. Uh, it was really uh, quite an interesting job, but my timing uh, was, I don't know, you know, I wouldn't say it was necessarily good or bad, but my last day, they had large layoffs because it was when the, the bubble, the kind of dot-com, that initial bubble around like 2000 or so burst. Yeah, I remember. And they, yeah, and they were affected by that. And so that was during my internship. And so it was wild to um, be present for that. You know, there's so much optimism. There, you know, a real um, engaged, friendly workforce. They did spend a lot of money. I have to say that they had a beautiful office on Michigan Avenue. 
uh, all of the nicest um, furniture and everything there. And maybe that's a lesson as well. But, you know, of course, people were really affected by it, too. But what I saw is that people loved their jobs and wanted to keep working in the field and move forward. And so when I was at um, I was at Putnam Investments working in currency investments, I really looked back on that job and loved this idea of creating. And so that's when I pivoted to work or learn really programming um, and, and design. I was drawn to design. So I started to gravitate towards product management. And then I later went to uh, Parsons, the new school for design. I did a design and technology program and an MFA program that really just, um, it it's a very applied program. So you just learn uh, to create through doing, but you also learn design principles along the way. And so that's you know where I also learned more modern. Yeah, I at your profile, and that was actually interesting. So it was kind of a user experience design, and uh, uh, like uh, like. Sorry, did you hear me? Yeah, there was a slight lag in the video there. Okay. So did you hear my question? So I uh, so that was an interesting thing in your profile. So was it kind of a uh, interaction design kind of a course or like experience, the overall experience design kind of thing, right? Yeah, in a sense it was both, right? You know, you would even learn, you know, they even had coursework on um, in graphic design and presentation, right? It was, you know, design as a discipline as a whole. Uh, and, you know, people would go down different tracks. So some people, might create something, you know, using, you know, uh, a lot of people were using Raspberry Pis and doing physical computing and creating artwork from, from that or commentary. Some people were creating um, what might be like uh, a prototype product, you know, uh, people were doing mobile design as well at the time. It might be more like for a product or a service, or it might be more of an exploratory creative use of the technology, you know, so maybe using the iPhone as a mechanism for storytelling, right? So, you know, like there was some people in my class who were really interested in using that, that technology to create, you know, like digital stories, you know, that fit that um, interface, you know, so it, it was a really open-ended program, but the important element was to, learn the design process, design principles, you know, understand what it is you're trying to build and, you know, effectively bring it to life. Great, great. Yeah. So I'm assuming this was around uh, maybe after 2005 or 2006 when iPhones were around more. They, they were yeah, more you know, yeah, this was after that. So it was, you know, around 2009 or so, 2010. So it was, uh, you know, iPhone, iPad, you know, I was playing around with the iPad a lot. I was really drawn to the Twitter API at the time. That was that was so much fun. You know, one of the areas where I focused a lot was using Twitter for sentiment analysis at airports. And it was more of a like naive sentiment analysis. What I think, you know, we're going to get into today is, you know, the students who are in the programs now have a whole different tool set at their disposal to play around with that. So when I was, some of the things I was doing for sentiment analysis was grabbing, you know, um, libraries that might help classify terms as positive or negative, 
and doing some sort of waiting, you know, and it was, you know, um, a little bit more heuristic, you know, not quite as um, algorithmic in that sense, but and it was definitely not using an LLM or anything like that. And at the, at the same time, I was really fascinated by it because I picked different themes. So like, what, what did TSA look like? What did the actual, like? actual poor bare minimum data science, like bare bone data science. You, exactly. Like, and it, it, you kind of think of it too, as like, you know, I, I feel that people often forget when you're trying to understand something, usually the first step is just to really understand the data. You, you know, you don't like, um, it may, it's getting more easy now to run models or use technologies, but, be, you know, before, and I think even now, sometimes it's just most important to look at the data and understand the data quality, right? Like, and, and that really is critical, right? You have to um, check it to see if it's reliable, if it's any good. And so I think there was an element of that, of um, cleaning it up and really also just fascinated me i just i just enjoyed it you know yeah yeah so then then came uh fetcher ai yeah so you know after parsons i i it timed out well where i was able to join a TechStars cohort i wasn't one of the founders but they had like people who could come in through the program and so i was there with some other people as like design resources which was really cool because what we could do is work with all of the different companies and so I ended up working with one of the companies there and staying along there. I really enjoyed the team. And through that process, um, that's how I met Andres Blank, uh, our, my co-founder, our CEO. And we started working together. And that's really what leads us to Fetcher. You know, our initial explorations, you know, wasn't exactly what we were doing with Fetcher. So, but there is still in what we do right now, like there's the basis of where we started. So when we first started, we were looking at LinkedIn and just realizing that, you know, maybe it was because of the way it's structured with um, the different degrees of connection. It was difficult for people who might be outsiders to find a way to break into groups, right? So Andres is from Venezuela, you know, he, you know, he, came to the United States. And so he, he found that he really had to work hard to kind of break through and to network. I tend to be a more kind of reserved and introverted person. And so, you know, maybe like I have to overcome that a little bit, but there's also like, there's just sometimes these challenges to breaking through and, uh, you know, not just that, but finding the right people to connect with. And right by like, right being defined as, you know, the people who, you're really interested in who you feel you could learn from uh people you you know you could um work with whatever that may be and so you know we started by building an application application that was maybe more consumer focused really focused on like connecting people you know and so it one of the things that was kind of interesting at the time and some other people did it as well it had the like tinder mechanic of like trying to like like kind of say yes or no to a few people who you might want to connect with. And then it could help to like recommend like other people that you connect with, can, could connect with and would recommend those people to be um, ones that you could reach out to. You know, so if you're moving to New York and you wanted to meet designers and maybe from certain companies, you could go through that process and then start to see people who 
fit what you were looking for. Uh, there's always a danger in building off of APIs, right? That's that's a that, that's a business risk that's always there, and you know we're cognizant of that. Uh, and so one of the things that kind of changed our trajectory was LinkedIn was going to shut down a lot of their APIs they wanted. You know that's of course you know well within their right, um, and so that meant that our service, in a sense that use case just wouldn't work the same way, right? And so th then it became necessary to pivot. And so what we did is really reflected on, and I credit Andres for the, so much for this, is we reflected on who, who was you know, most interested in using this product for connecting. And we found it was recruiters and salespeople. There's a lot of products, that, and there were a lot of products at the time for lead generation and sales. There's less for kind of built for recruiters that that's changing now there's more in the space but we took that basis of understanding who people want to connect with who they want to network with and connect and that's what we built into fetcher and so that's you know that's how we kind of morphed or evolved into what we're doing now and um you know it's a really exciting area to focus on you know one of the things i do love about um recruiters is we you know we have this dog theme, of course, within our name and within our brand. And we always felt that recruiters were underdogs when it came to budget, when it came to tools. And I've always loved, you know, being a resource for the underdog and, you know, providing valuable tech for the underdog. And, and that's what I, I feel like we do. Great, great. So one thing is that uh, your core product is actually what I'm uh, imagining is, is based on AI engine behind the scene, recommendation engine or the, the all, all that stuff. The other thing is uh, the use of AI in your development processes, right? While developing this product, are you using AI? Yeah, or something? yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. You know, so in the, of course, in the core product, you know, when it comes to AI, machine learning, data science, that's the um, underpinning for serving up the best recommendations, right? And and also, um, you know, really being able to scale that process. You know, when we started out, you know, one of the areas that we focused on is we've always had what you'd say like a human in the loop. And, and that's because when we first started out and we were validating Fetcher, you know, something I forgot to mention is that the first, it wasn't exactly the first version or prototype, but what we did is we took a Google spreadsheet, put a bunch of names of people that fit who um, people we knew may want to hire, put like their image there, a brief job description, and a link that you can put in the Google Sheet that would create like an email, you know, a hyperlink that does a pre-filled email. And um, kind of ask them like, what else do you want? Like, you know, you know, because knowing that the people aren't likely going to just pay for a spreadsheet, but what it is, you know, promising is finding the right people, finding a way to contact. And and through that we learned, you know, the workflows and the other aspects to sourcing, hiring that are important to people and to businesses. Um, fundamental to that is finding the right people. And so we've always taken an approach of, you know, having a human in the loop, but also like helps us to build and label and evaluate our data set, right? So by having a team of people that like helps us to be able to source when we didn't have much data, we didn't have much label data, much validated data. Um, and also, you know, build up expertise within a certain area, and then um, 
serve quality results to our customers. And then as we repeat that over time, we have more information to do a much better job at um, recommending the right people algorithmically. Right. So, you know, in a sense, it's a it's a process, but that's also like kind of like another lesson in just kind of building out something that might you know, not start fully automated, you know, and then kind of build out. I think something that has kind of changed even since we started started is there have been like LOMs kind of change that. Right. Like the, the process of testing and evaluating, it's so much easier. There's few shot learning, zero shot learning. A lot of that um, started to develop over the years. Um, so it's really interesting how I believe, like, you know, we might talk about the process of development, but even the process of validating these things, testing this, serving results, that has gotten much easier, right? And, and that's, you know, really an exciting thing uh, more than anything else. But, you know, and um, our focus is, you know, we're building up a, a strong data set, you know, clean data set. And, um, and have the models uh, underlying it to be able to serve the best results. So you have already touched upon some challenges that you uh, that you faced, and typically the first challenge is the data, because you need data to train your model. So absolutely. So how did you start? For example, you 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 built something minimal to collect the data and then keep on maturing your models, or how did you do it? Yeah, you know, we did start there. And then I think as we got traction, what we were able to do is build out like data partnerships through like vendors that we were able to validate. And, and so that's really, that was the game changer. That's when we were, be, that's when we were able to start taking a more a machine learning driven approach and be able to pair the team that we have and the kind of labeling or validation curation that they're doing with that data set, right? So that, that was a game changer for us. What I think is interesting is access to data is, you know, people might say it's like a commodity, but that's becoming more open. And so a lot of people will have access to a certain amount of data. And then what I think becomes more interesting is the information that companies have within their own ecosystem that become really valuable signals that, um, lead to either like more accurate results or um, maybe better results, you know, be able to cover more broad territories or more depth within the market. And um, for us, that took the shape of, you know, not only having, you know, we've sent millions of profiles to our customers. And so if you think about having a team, you know, kind of evaluating a lot of that, we've had a, a tremendous amount of validation and labeling done internally that helps us to know that the data is clean, which is a true advantage for us. But then we also have validation from our customers, right? They're able to give us feedback as well. They're able to say whether or not they feel somebody's a good fit. That's you know more binary feedback, but they can also give uh, qualitative feedback, you know, so notes on the person. So we can use that text now and. Uh, take those notes and see, you know, how do the notes, um, you know, how can we use those notes to better serve profiles, you know, the the next time around for our customer, but you know, just in general. And we and then what excited me the most, and when I think one of our kind of most successful models was built on top of our 
uh, email inbox where what we we did is um, we get responses from candidates and we just label the probability of interest. So are they interested, likely interested or not interested? It's not the hardest problem to solve, but it's very useful for customers because what they can do is sort their inbox by who's most interested or least interested. And then we've built templates um, for those cases so that you can very quickly, you know, especially for like people who are not interested, reply and just thank them uh, for responding. It's, you know, really positive for employee branding um, and it keeps the connection alive. We also have templates for the people who are interested so that you can engage them sooner. Because, you know, one thing we did find in our analysis is, is that the people who tend to get hired, this isn't always the case, they often reply rather quickly. They're, they're eager, they're like, they're, you know, and so one thing, you, you know, companies don't want to do is be slow getting back to them, right? You know, you want to get back to them and, and validate your own interest as well, you know, or revalidate it. So that model for me was just so exciting because it's simple uh, and it's just so valuable, right? There, there's so many more things that we can build on top of it. And, you know, one of the things too with, um, we're seeing with LLMs is the templating that we can do and that's something we're exploring can be more dynamic now. You know, before it was, you know, a little bit more static and now we have the potential to be more dynamic. Yeah. yeah. So Chris, having been through all this, I mean, from 20, zero, zero, two, from 2000 till here, you have seen all, you have been, yeah, you've been there, done that, every kind of thing. So, uh, where do you think are we headed? Where is the world headed with all this uh, new capabilities and new things? Like generative is a new thing, relatively. And where do you think we are headed? That's, you know, it's really interesting. I was reflecting on that. I've been reflecting on that quite a bit. You know, in some in some respects, I, you know, I don't know that I'm the most like well positioned, but I do feel that what we're seeing right now. It's real rapid adoption of this technology by people of all walks of life, you know? And so you had mentioned, you know, talking about AI and software development, but I have to imagine, I'm kind of curious, like how many people do you know outside of software development, outside of tech that have like tested chat GPT? Like, all of my kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's so mine are a bit too young, but what I think is really interesting is that across every team in our organization, you know, we talk about it, right? You know, because it's, you know, um, there's like all these different use cases, you know, of course, there's instances of people using LLMs for content generation, um, you, you know, people can use it for drafts of different documents, you know, even like legal document drafts. Uh, I have on a product management team is used to do is like JQL, the jQuery kind of SQL language, you know, to like debug and do that, you know, so the, like there's so there's been so many use cases for that. And, and also across the team, it's, you know, I haven't really looked at or researched, you know, what's happened to Stack Overflow you know, since it's come out, but I feel like it's replacing that kind of, you know, what learn, like people who are learning in software development do, they might go to Stack Overflow or a different site, figure out how to solve a problem. Now they can do that with this chat interface. 
get fairly reliable results and um, kind of move forward in that regard. And so I do see it in terms of where we're going, I do see it being more and more embedded in our lives in, in ways that um, I, it's almost like more quickly than other tech you know, has been, but then at the same time, I hope it's done really thoughtfully because there's still open-ended problems with it that need to be solved, reliability issues that need to be solved, you know, might work for some use cases better than others. There's kind of a risk inherent in that, you know, so, you know, that, that's the one of the things I do see. I see, I, I see quite a bit of experimentation. I'm not a hundred percent sure what all the outcomes will look like to be honest, you know, I'm too, because because I think I think we are adopting it pretty quickly and very fast, uh, without knowing how much correct it is. Because it it gives you it tells you something, but you can yeah. never be so it can hallucinate. Yeah. And hundred percent, hundred percent, and then like so, I can give an example of uh, I had a friend, one of the first people I'd heard of Chat GPT is a while ago. I didn't have like the demo available yet. And I had a friend who had it and um, was playing around with it. And one of the things he did for my son was he like used it to write a children's story, you know, and it was just kind of like a silly children's story. And so I've done that a couple of times, but I've also done a couple like darker ones, like as a joke. And so I did one about a mouse and I said it like in the kind of German kind of fairy tale, fairy tale style. And so I thought it'd be kind of like a dark, fairy tale and I was using Claude by Anthropic. And what made me laugh, and I should have expected this, is that I said in the German style and it wrote it in German. You know, and I just started laughing because I wasn't expecting it. But honestly, if I was thinking about it taking things literally, I should have expected it. I then asked it to translate it to English. But I think the danger is, is I don't speak German, right? And I have no means to evaluate that response. And so I think there's so many other use cases, right? You know, it might be in software development or whatever it may be. You mentioned hallucination, hallucinations where it could set somebody down the right path if they're using it without some knowledge of the field that they're asking about. And then, you know, understanding of being able to say, well, like this doesn't look quite right. Like, you know, and so if people trust the results too much and not do enough thinking and evaluation on their own, like, that's very, very dangerous right now. And so I, I think that's worrisome across every use case. Yeah. So Chris, you, you, you said that you are an introvert and you think a lot and that, so that's why I'm asking this. So do you think this will make us more superficial because it gives you some answer and if, if the new generation starts believing in it and they stop, for example, in, in case of Stack Overflow also, we have observed that when we tried to solve the problem uh, and we went to Stack Overflow, the first solution was not always the optimal, the most optimal solution. Yeah, so so yeah. it gives you a superficial answer, which may work, but yeah. may not exist. So, and with this chat, GPT and these kinds of technologies, this, this thing will actually magnify many folds. And uh, do, you, do you fear that it will make the new generation stop thinking more in depth or be superficial? It's a really interesting question. You know, it, it might, you know, you know, I, I suppose that 
superficial might come with like a layer of like judgment to it, you know, and like, I don't know, you know, because I, I know that some people, and I, I don't know neuroscience well enough, but, you know, I do feel that we use our brains very differently than our ancestors did. If you go back, you know, quite a different ways. And then even just having like access to Google or different things, you know, we, we may not remember, you know, like, for instance, I believe like people could recite stories at like in such depth and clarity that I feel most people would struggle with right now and be able to remember texts with like depth and clarity that people would struggle with now because we're inundated with so much information. And so it, it kind of crowds it all out. Um, I do feel to your point that if this kind of technology is more widespread, I have to feel it would result in changes to people, whether it's like super, people are more superficial or one part of the brain is turning off and another part is turning on. Is that good or bad? I, I, I do think that's correct. You know, I don't know neuroscience well enough to kind of judge where it's going, knowing well, whether it's good or bad, but I, I do, I think you have an excellent point and I, I do feel like that could happen. Thank you so much, Chris, for being here with us in this talk. And uh, we do love the lot, lot talking to you. And uh, so with this, we end this talk. Uh, and anything else that you want to share, Chris? No, you know, I appreciate the time today. I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. And um, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Chris. See you. Bye. We look forward to bringing you the latest industry news in our next episode. In the meantime, check out our other episodes at techcell.com slash podcast and be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel so that you never miss an episode.